Today we conclude this uh, very beautiful epistle of Peter on the subject of suffering. If you have your Bibles, will you follow along as I read from chapter 5, from the first to the last verse of benediction. The elders who are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight of it, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. In like manner, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, Settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, greeteth you, and so doth Mark, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Signed, Simon Peter. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our wonderful Lord, how we pray that as we open thy word this morning, there shall be on the part of all of us a great eagerness. How we pray that we might listen as though we were hearing these matchless truths for the very first time. And may they come to us with the preciousness of diamonds. And we pray, our wonderful Lord, that none of us will be the same when this hour is ended. But we pray that the tremendous sense of thy presence that we always experience in the study of the word of God will abide with us and go with us. Hide the one who ministers in the message. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Several years ago, Dr. Peter Reese Joshua was invited to be the speaker for the sunrise service to be held in Chicago's huge soldiers' field. That particular service attracted that year over 60,000 people in weather so cold uh, that an aide had to hold an electric light bulb over the organist's hands to keep them limber enough to be able to play. As the time approached 
for the Easter service, the great overwhelming spiritual burden, the responsibility of preaching to such a vast audience and to hundreds and thousands of radio listeners so weighed down upon Dr. Joshua's spirit that the day before the service, he wired his regrets, suggesting that, that he was not the man, that the task was simply too big for him. From Harry Solnier, who, by the way, is going to be with us, at least he's going to be here in this area, in a convention that's soon to be held of all of the superintendents of the missions, actually of the world, and this is going to be in Eugene, it's going to be in our church. I've been asked to be the Bible teacher for this particular occasion, and I'm very honored and delighted. But Harry Solner was the chairman of the sponsoring committee and the director of the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, very, very famous mission. He immediately wired Peter Joshua, you're just God's instrument, he'll do the rest. Dr. Joshua appeared as scheduled for what was to be evidently one of the most memorable sunrise services that was ever held in Soldier's Field. And not until several weeks later did the exchange of telegrams become known. What a new dawn would break upon our churches if all of us who are in positions of spiritual leadership staggered under the burden of the overwhelming spiritual responsibility that is ours, and if indeed the lay people of our church refreshed us with their holy eager expectation and desire to love and eagerness to serve. And so it is that Peter speaks to us, first of all, about the responsibility of spiritual leadership. And he says, now a word to you elders of the church. He said, I too am an elder. I know something about the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share his glory and I'll share his honor when he returns. By the way, if Peter was ever a pope, evidently he didn't know it. He took his place immediately as one with the other elders who were the leaders of the church, the pastors in sharing the ministry that was essential and necessary to the consistent growth of believers in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And even though he was privileged to be one of that very intimate and original group of 12, who of course were identified so intimately with all the experiences of our Lord Jesus, and in particular the passion experience of those final days of our Lord's earthly life, he says he is yet to be a partaker of something wonderful. He's to partake of the glory that shall be revealed in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the second time. You see, Peter was carrying out the commission he received when on that occasion that I'm sure was so much a part of Peter's memory that it was always in the forefront of his thought for you remember, Peter had boasted about how he would stand by the Lord, and the Lord told him that actually when the great test came, Peter would fail. And then how our Lord assured Peter by saying, Peter, 
I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And then he assured him further that he was going to be sifted not as chaff, but as wheat. And then our Lord said in Peter, when you have turned again, in other words, when you've come back and you've been restored, Peter, strengthen your brethren. So Peter says the first responsibility of a spiritual leader is to feed the flock. The word feed is the translation of the Greek word that literally means to shepherd the flock. It means more than feed. It includes the duties of tending and guiding and guarding, the responsibility of training. Indeed, the shepherd had to take care of the wounds of the sheep. He had to watch over their strayings. He had to discipline them for their safety. He had to guard against the enemy, the wolf. And of course, no shepherd could ever be a faithful shepherd without praying for the sheep. And I'm sure as Peter wrote these words, he doubtless became aware of a scene in the drama of his own life that was vivid. I'm sure the recollection of it would be immediate. That marvelous 21st chapter of John, when you recall in between the time when our Lord Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples and the time when he next appeared, there was a, a time of delay. And Peter didn't know exactly what to do, neither did the other disciples. I, I don't think at this time their responsibilities were quite clear. After all, the day of Pentecost hadn't come. That particular promise that had to do with Pentecost had not yet specifically been given. And so Peter became dreadfully restless. And sensing that this was also the situation with the others... He finally made the suggestion that perhaps they would all feel better if they went back to their task, the work that they formerly did before Jesus had claimed them and called them. And so he suggested that there wasn't anything better than to just go fishing. And so, as was the custom, evidently, they took their boats off into the twilight to fish through the night. And it was a very, very fruitless night. No fish were caught. And then we can never forget how through the mists of the morning there was a figure discerned on the shore. And then there was a voice that said, Have you caught anything? And dispiritedly and disconsolately they, they called back and said, No. And then in a voice that could not conceal the accent of authority, that one who was standing on the shore said, Put your nets down on the right side. And it is interesting that they never debated the authority of the voice that spoke. Evidently, there was something about it that was irresistible, and so they immediately let the nets down on the right side of the boat. And you know the rest of the story. A whole school of fish moved into the net. You can imagine the excitement of the moment. And John, with his amazing physical perception that was uh, only matched by his spiritual perception, sensed immediately who was standing on the shore. And he cried out exultantly, It is the Lord! And then Peter forgot all about the fish, the net, and everything else. He just grabbed his garments, we're told, that he evidently had taken off in the warm night. And he 
put them around himself, and he dove in the water and started for the shore as fast as he could get there. And then I imagine when he got there, there was a very embarrassing silence because this was the first time that Peter had been with Jesus since that awful night that he denied him. You remember when he said, I know not the man, and stumbled out into the night and wept bitterly. And then we can never forget how around the breakfast fire with that tempting aroma, our Lord took Peter aside and he evoked from him a triple response of affection. And that with each affirmation of affection, our Lord commanded him to nourish and tend and take care of the flock. So Peter in his epistle, you see, says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight of it, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but with a ready mind. The shepherds are reminded that the flock is God's, not theirs. They are only under shepherds. Also that God has only one flock. You know, sometimes that kind of hurts us Baptists. But he has only one flock. Every blood-bought, born-again believer in the world belongs to that one flock. And sheep are to be fed by the ministering of the truth of the Word of God. In other words, the great responsibility of the spiritual leader, whatever other task he may have in relation to the body of Christ, is to constantly give attention to the exposition and the teaching of the Word of God. And one of the reasons today that we have such an ignorant laity is because spiritual leaders have not been faithful in this great, tremendous responsibility of meeting out the Word of God and teaching it line by line, precept by precept, until people are rooted and grounded in its great and holy truth. What a grievous thing it is when men professing to be servants of Christ set before the sheep and the lambs of the flock on scriptural teaching or contentless preaching which cannot edify and which often even misleads. And so you see it's very logical that Peter immediately warns of certain dangers that come to spiritual leaders. And by the way, when we're talking about spiritual leaders, we're not just talking about the pastors. We're talking about anyone who assumes the responsibility of teaching the body of Christ. First of all, Peter says there's the danger of professionalism. Samuel Chadwick said to his fellow ministers, preaching must never be a profession, it must be a passion. And if our ambition carries us no higher than bringing off a professionally decent job, then God forgive us. Now, this is a species of covetousness that becomes a form of heinous idolatry. You see, we are to be motivated by the love of Christ and the desire to serve, never by anything less than that. Another danger to spiritual leaders is avarice. And I don't think that it's so much the corrupting power of money that ministers need to worry about. But you see, there are other corrupting powers that are implied here, the corrupting power of desire for personal popularity. And you know, if the man of God is faithful to the Word of God, he can't possibly be popular with everybody. Did you ever know in the Old Testament a popular prophet? 
And you see, the man of God has the responsibility of declaring the whole counsel of God. And if he does, unfortunately, there are those who are not going to like it. But you see, the man of God has one supreme loyalty. His loyalty is first of all to Jesus Christ, and then as a faithful steward, he has to minister the Word of God. Then there's another danger to those who carry this solemn responsibility, and Dr. Reese calls this the dictatorial pretentiousness. And of course, we immediately think, for example, of the hierarchy that has been developed in the structure of Catholicism, with its priests and its lord bishops and its cardinals, known as the princes of the church, and all the other dignitaries who rule with an iron hand, those under their uh, jurisdiction. And by the way, nothing could be more opposed to what Peter is teaching right here. And yet, isn't it interesting that some folk call Peter the first pope? Uh, whatever authority spiritual leaders have, and by the way, the Word of God does give them specific authority, but whatever authority they ever exercise has to spring from lives of godliness and complete subjection to the Lord and obedience to His Word. There's the source of authority for the man of God. Peter says a spiritual leader is to be an example to the flock whom the sheep may safely follow. I like what Dr. Reese says, what the chief shepherd wants is an uncoerced mind, a non-mercenary motive, and a non-pretentious manner. Dr. Barclay suggests that human nature is such that it is true that for many people, prestige and power are even more attractive than money. There are those who just love authority even if that authority can only be exercised in a very narrow sphere. A Milton Satan, for example, thought it better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Shakespeare spoke about man, proud man, dressed in his little brief authority, playing such fantastic tricks before high heaven as would make the angels weep. You see, the great characteristic of the shepherd is his selfless care and his sacrificial love for his sheep. And any man who enters the office with a desire of preeminence, with an idea of exercising authority, with the idea of becoming a ruler, has got his whole point of view upside down and distorted. You remember what Jesus said to his ambitious disciples in the 10th chapter of Mark? He said, ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. For whosoever shall be great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever of you shall be the chiefest of all shall be the servant of all. And so Peter says, glorious reward is promised to the faithful spiritual leader, the faithful shepherd. Because when the head shepherd comes, your reward, Peter says, will be a never-ending share in his glory and his honor. 
By the way, spiritual leaders, the word of God teaches must give an account of their service to the chief shepherd at his appearing. And that's why John says to be careful lest you appear before him in shame. His own blessed hands, how beautiful, will bestow upon each faithful under shepherd an unfading victor's wreath of glory, the token of his pleasure in the service that has been rendered in his name and for his sake. The victor's crown, which the Lord Jesus Christ will give his faithful under-shepherd, will never, ever wither or fade. Now, what particular form this reward takes is not stated, and some of you know that I have some very definite ideas on this, but I won't go into it this morning. Suffice it that I say that the Apostle Paul said that his crown of rejoicing at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for his church would be the souls it was his privilege to win to the Savior. That's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He said, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? It is you. Yes, you will bring us much joy as we stand together before our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back again. For ye are our glory and our joy. When I was in Eureka, I had just a tiny little touch of this. A pastor came to me and he said, Dr. MacArthur, I want to show you a picture. And he showed me a picture of a, of a missionary in, in South America. And he said, you know, uh, this young man was saved under your ministry. You don't know anything about it, but he heard you preach and he received Jesus Christ and God called him to the mission field. And now he's on the mission field with his family. And... Uh, it was your message that day that the Spirit of God used to bring him to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I never heard of him before, never even knew his name. Every once in a while, you just get a little bit of something like this, and oh, what joy there is. A preacher got up in the pastor's conference and told about a lady that was saved about four weeks ago listening to the voice of Calvary. And he said, you know, as a result of her conversion, her husband came to Christ and four of her children, and we baptized six people in our church. That's the crown of rejoicing. That's why I say to you so many times, absolutely nothing left for me in heaven, not a thing. I'll be way down the end of the line, and I'll be just happy to be there. Like that old Negro spiritual that some of you have heard, if I can just make it in. If I can just make it in. What are then the responsibilities of all Christians? Because now Peter moves from the responsibility of leadership to the responsibility of the entire flock. And he says in verse 5, you younger, follow the leadership of those who are older, and all of you serve one another in humble spirits, for God gives special blessing to those who are humble, but sets himself against those who are proud. And if you will humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in his good time, he will lift you up. It's important that all Christians seek to adopt the right attitude of mind and response to the Word of God as the Spirit of God applies the Word to our heart and in relation to the spiritual leaders in their circumstances. In other words, they should react in ready submission and willing service particularly in relation to those who are called and appointed to God to lead them, and above all in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Dr. Weiss tells us that the word younger used here 
is not to be interpreted primarily as referring to the younger element in the church. It would seem that the word refers to organizations composed of younger people. And these organizations are exhorted to be obedient to the spiritual leaders of the church. These words would seem to be very appropriate today in the light of the a tragic separation of the generations that we often call a generation gap. When young people unfortunately lose respect and will not accept the authority of those who are older. How I rejoice in the fact that we don't sense much of that in our fellowship. But now Peter immediately directs what he has to say to embrace the whole body of believers, the whole congregation. Now what he says is the responsibility of all Christians. And the first point that he makes is that Christians are to be humble. He puts it this way, be clothed with humility. And once again, doubtless a scene came before the mind of Peter as he wrote these words, and it would be that unforgettable occasion when you remember in the upper room, Jesus took the towel and readied himself to wash the disciples' feet. And you remember how Peter protested and said, Oh, no, Lord, you, this, this must not be done. You must not wash my feet. But when our Lord told Peter how necessary it was and how meaningful it was, then you remember how eagerly Peter consented and said, Lord, don't wash my feet. Just wash me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet because Jesus taught that this was how they were to identify themselves with him. And the lesson of that self-imposed lowliness on the part of our Lord made an indelible impression upon Peter because, you see, humility is an attitude. Now I want you to listen to me very carefully. Here in picturesque expression... Humility is presented as a garment to be worn. And what is so beautiful about true humility is that the one who has it is completely unconscious of it. And if anybody ever says they have it, they don't. This is a very delightful passage from C.S. Lewis. He writes, Do not imagine if you meet a really humble man he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarty person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. And if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud and a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. That's kind of an interesting quote, isn't it? Now, when Peter uses the phrase garment of humility, the garment to which he refers was the apron of a slave. That is the word, by the way, that is used in the description 
of that time when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Well, interestingly, when Peter says in verse 5, For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble, the word for proud describes another kind of garment. It's the putting on of the long flowing robe, uh, uh, the garment which is a sign of honor and preeminence. It would be the kind of a robe that you wear in an academic procession when you are the possessor of a doctorate. How clear is the lesson? We must put on the apron of humility in the service of Christ and of our fellow men. And as Dr. Barclay points out, that very apron of humility becomes a garment of honor for us, for he who is servant of all is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. One of the surest evidences that a church member is proud is the fact that everybody around him seems to be wrong and that nobody is doing anything right. A critical spirit is the highest form of conceit because it assumes superiority. And actually, the reason that the person who is proud is frustrated is because the resistance that person is sensing and feeling is the wall that God has built around him. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So, it's the responsibility of Christians to be clothed with humility in honor preferring one another. Secondly, it's the responsibility of Christians to be trustful. Peter says, casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. In a little more graphic expression, let him have all your worries and cares, for he is always thinking about you and watching everything that concerns you. You know, anxiety tends to distract and divide the mind, and anxiety, of course, immediately prevents the possibility of wholehearted devotion and dedication. And the antidote for it is to turn to God and find relief in shifting the weight of our anxiety from ourselves to Him. And this calls for a very specific, definite act of unreserved and total and utter surrender to Jesus Christ. You know, I can't, I'm sure, in any way count the thousands of times that I've stood by the bedside of, of someone who was facing the immediate possibility of a surgery in which perhaps many things were in doubt. And I've said to that believer, I want to give you a verse. It's 2 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. I've said to them, don't carry the load of this. You shift it over to the Lord Jesus and let him sustain you through this. And he will. You see, these Christians were undergoing such fierce persecution that the circumstances in which they found themselves gave abundant worry. And do you know what worry is? Worry is a what? It's a sin, that's right. Worry is a sin. 
and man do I sin and so do you but you know the word here refers to a direct and once and for all committal to God of all that would give us concern because you see anxiety is a self-contradiction to true humility let me show you what I mean you see Unbelief, in a sense, is exalting self above God. In other words, it's a depending upon oneself and one's resources instead of depending upon God and His unlimited resources. So you see, whenever I do not trust God in any given situation, I am playing God. I'm my own God. I am acting as though the living God didn't matter. And that is not humility. That is the essence of conceit. Because it's not acknowledging God. And that's why when unbelievers fail to acknowledge God, it's such a terrible sin. It's making yourself God. And so Peter says God is more concerned about our welfare than we could possibly be. He is no indifferent spectator of our suffering. It matters to God about you and about me. And we can be certain that because God cares for us, life is out not to break us all to pieces, but to mold us and to make us. And with that assurance... If we are really committed Christians, we can accept any experience that comes to us because we believe the promise of Romans 8.28. We may not see it, we may not understand it because we don't see the tapestry from the right side, we see it from the wrong side. But if we see it from the right side, we'd be able to say that all things do work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And by the way, there was a delightful little sidelight and I'm sure you'll remember this in the returning of one of our astronauts. When Commander Scott Carpenter returned from his orbiting of the Earth and met all the dignitaries and all the people who were excited about his achievement amidst the homage of the entire nation being heaped upon him, <clears throat> in the midst of one of the great conferences with the press, his little five-year-old girl, Candace, ran up to him and, and causing all other conversation to cease by her presence and gaining the full attention of her hero father, she held up her elbow and reminded him that during the time that he was orbiting the earth, she had skinned it and it was really sore. And as any loving father would do, he immediately turned his entire attention to her. And he picked her up in his arms and he kissed her. And he said, I know your elbow's gonna be all right. And then he put her down. You see, amidst all the excitement and the busyness, he, he had a father's love that just couldn't be denied. And so it is with our Lord, his infinite care and concern for his own extends to the most minute particle, the tiniest detail of our existence, and nothing is permitted to escape his infinite knowledge, and more than that, 
his control. It was Matthew Henry who said, if God numbers the hairs of his children, how much more does he number their heads and take care of their lives, their comforts, and their souls? And I never read that wonderful verse, but what I think that it's getting mathematically easier for God to handle my particular situation about the hair all the time. And for some of you, I could even handle it. Peter affirms it's the responsibility of all Christians further to be watchful, to be humble, to be trustful, to be watchful. And to paraphrase his words just a little, he says, be careful, watch out for the attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion looking for a victim to tear apart. Stand firm when he attacks. Trust the Lord, and remember that other Christians all around the world are going through these sufferings too. Dr. Reese reminds us that we should look at verse 8 in military terms, and he suggests that first of all, we should never neglect our reconnaissance. The English Bible says, wait, be on the alert. And once again, we know what Peter was thinking about because we are reminded of that unforgettable time when our Lord took those selected three with him into the garden to pray, for he was going into the agony of Gethsemane, and he said to them with great tenderness, and I'm sure with unforgettable appeal, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And what had Peter done? He had uh, succumbed to exhaustion, and when our Lord came from the agony of Gethsemane, he found Peter asleep. And even though he was forgiven, I'm sure that Peter could never remember that occasion without a twinge, without wincing. The second suggestion is never underestimate your enemy. In the Word of God, we find a vigorous, unabashed insistence upon the reality of Satan. And this is a deranged, mad world because it is a bedeviled and a bewitched world. Things are upside down and values are inverted and vices and virtues are transposed. The demonic element when it isn't malignantly voracious, as for example under a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao Zedong. Sometimes it's seen as incredibly glamorous and cunning, as for example in the rotten, filthy movies and novels of our time. This is your foe, says Peter forever the devourer, forever getting you. You will rue the day, Peter says, that you treat him frivolously or carelessly because his whole ambition is to destroy you. And what a liar he is. He says, take a shot of this. Stick it in your arm. It'll be fun and then he destroys you. Drink this. It'll make you feel good. And then you wind up a wretched alcoholic. What a liar he is. When we refuse to give place to Satan, when we stand firmly in the victory of the cross, the Word of God says he flees from us and his power is broken all to pieces. 
Dr. Barclay says that the devil is like any bully. He retreats when he is gallantly and bravely resisted in the strength and in the company of Jesus Christ. The third suggestion is never forget your allies. Remember that other Christians all around the world are going through suffering too. By the way, I was thinking this morning that most of us American Christians live in a fantastic isolation, a sterility from what's happening to other Christians in the world. The news media tells us what's happening to people in the general sense of the war and the carnage that's ever with us, but the reports that we hear about what's happening to Christians many times never find the communication channels, and we never learn much about it, and maybe it leaks out years after. Uh, for example, uh, the last church in Albania, an Eastern Orthodox church in the capital city, Tirana, is now closed. And it's interesting that along with the Chinese now, the Albanian Christians have been the most tortured believers on the planet Earth. All the church leaders in Albania are either in prison or have been murdered. We can't even find them. Most of the Christians, it's concluded, have been liquidated. When the Communist Party boss, Enver Hadzja, usurped power in 1944, he and his friends went to church to thank God for the liberation of his country. In 1961, Hodge just sold his country to Peking to enable China to have a bridge into Europe. And since that time, from all the reports that we can gain, Christians have been methodically and systematically eliminated and exterminated and massacred. You see, these Christians know what it means to suffer for their commitment to Jesus Christ. But notice how carefully Peter points out that all suffering on the part of believers should be looked on as being something not very important. He even describes it as being something that we endure for just a little while. Our Lord will not permit one trial too many. And when his purpose is fulfilled, we are promised that we shall be perfected and established in his grace. He writes, after you've suffered a little while, our God, who is full of kindness through Christ, will give you his eternal glory. He personally will come and pick you up and set you firmly in place and make you stronger than ever. To him be power over all things forever and ever. Amen. Every once in a while, Peter gets such a surge of inexpressible joy in the completion of God's eternal purpose that he just can't contain himself. I like what Dr. Reese writes on this. He says, this glorious goal is brighter than a dozen suns, but the way to it has darksome valleys that have to be traversed and black clouds that hang over it and fierce storms that break over it. And yet all the while his grace is sufficient. All the while his glory keeps beckoning. All the while, in fact, he keeps saying, I am your God. I am grace. I am glory. I am your guide. I am your goal. I am your hunger, I am your food, I am your thirst, I am your drink. Even suffering can be made to serve. Anything can and everything so long as it evokes the exhaustless sufficiency to be found in him. Then 
Peter comes to his final word of benediction. God himself in the wealth of his grace as the one who has called them to share eternally in his glory can be counted on according to the purpose, his purpose, to use their brief earthly sufferings to make them strong and, and virile and steadfast. For verily his strength is always the strength that prevails. And so he concludes, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. Greet ye one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You see, because of his confidence in the faithfulness of Sylvanus, he has used him to write this letter. It's rather intriguing as to why he used an amentuous, uh, a secretary. You know why Paul did, because Paul, you remember, suffered from glaucoma and he was partially blind. And he even said that when he did write, he had to write with huge letters. But we don't know why Peter had to have someone write for him, but he did. And his letter is all too brief, but its purpose is to encourage these believers, particularly by giving them his own personal testimony concerning the character of the grace of God, which is to be enjoyed in the midst of suffering by a humble, dependent faithfulness. And undoubtedly, his reference to Babylon is sort of a code word because he's undoubtedly referring to Rome, which of course was the great center of hedonism and godlessness. And it is interesting and I think very beautiful that in the early church, the kiss became an essential part of Christian worship. By the way, this, this tells us something about the, the, the marvelous closeness of, of these early Christians. In Oriental churches, this custom is still practiced it's beautiful. In our churches, a cordial, a meaningful handshake has taken its place, but I'm sure it has the same symbolism. Actually expresses the warm, intimate fellowship, the family relationship that ought to prevail among Christians who love one another and whose Love, as Johnny expressed it in his message, just splashes all over everybody else. It's one of the tragedies of the church that often its congregation do not know each other. But you see, Christians have to know each other more and more. No, they must know each other and love each other. Peter concludes, peace be to you all that are in Christ. And so he leaves his people and he leaves you and he leaves me to the peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Which Peter is saying is greater than all the trials and the tribulations and the tragedies and the vicissitudes and, and the emergencies and the distress that the world can ever bring. Because you see, Jesus Christ offers to all of us the peace of adequate resources. I often think about this. 
when on that unforgettable occasion, before it all happened, before the Calvarian murder took place, Jesus was with his disciples for the last time, and he said to them as he gave the benediction, My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. Do you know that Jesus didn't have anything to leave us but his peace? No legacy. The heritage that Jesus left us was his peace. My peace I give unto you. Well, now, wait a minute. What peace was he talking about? I'll tell you what it was. It was the peace that he knew in all those terrifying, turbulent hours on Skull Hill. The peace that he knew amidst the cries of the raucous mob who nailed him to the cross. The peace that he knew under the boiling sun as the gangrene raced through his fever-wracked body. The peace that he knew when the jeering mob said, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. The peace that he knew in the great victory he scored when he said, te telestitis finished. The peace that he knew when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The peace that he knew when he turned to the dying thief and said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. His peace. What a legacy. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. Let us pray. Our wonderful Lord, how we thank Thee for these marvelous moments of spiritual exaltation that become ours as treasures when we faithfully study Thy Word. Know how we pray that thou wilt increasingly give to this particular body of believers such a tremendous love for the Word of God that they shall hunger for it as hungry men hunger for food and as men slaked with thirst cry for water. Oh, how we thank thee that, that thou hast given so much to us Sometimes we're overwhelmed with all the expressions of thy love. How we thank thee for the spiritual adequacy that thou dost give us in all of life's experiences, and how we thank thee that depending upon thee, we are assured of not only a love that will never let us go, but a peace that will pass all human understanding. Oh, our wonderful Lord, help us to be clothed with humility, to make such a total commitment to Thee that we can say our lives are in Thy hands, that all we are and have and ever hope to be, we've surrendered absolutely and unconditionally to Thee. Help us to be on the alert against the wiles of the adversary, and help us, our wonderful Lord, to manifest the lovely fruits of the Spirit in all of our attitudes. and grant to us thy peace. And now while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed,